I think it's on now. <laughs> Everybody hear me? Yeah, is that better? That's better, okay. Very good. I'll stay away from this in case I get an echo. Great, we're on the way. So uh, genealogies we need to look at, some archaeological information, and I also wanted to uh, throw in uh, something about King Herod because we've been talking about him over Christmas and killing the babies of Bethlehem and that. And yet, that man is called Herod the Great. What was so great about somebody who killed babies? A little bit about his life story too, thrown in. I don't know how I fit that in overall, but I just liked to think it was worth doing to show how uh, somebody that was called great by the world was so different to what the Bible calls great. Uh, and then, of course, that's about the information. What impact should it have on us? I trust that through this whole service today that we will be overawed by how great and how powerful God is and how when things look really bad that he's in control. And I think we've been learning that in our whole service right up until now. And I trust that a Sunday morning service will not just be about Sunday morning, but that it will have an impact on how we relate to God tomorrow and the next day and right through the whole week. So it's not just about information. I trust that through what we do this morning, that each one of us will be drawn closer to God. And there may be people here who have never trusted him. And I pray that through everything that has happened this morning and will happen, that God will speak to you and that this will be the day that you'll decide to really put your life in his hands and trust him. That's what we hope to do. Let's read a few verses from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Azza. And now down to verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we know God will graciously bless his word to all our hearts. Um, genealogies are sure to be a better way of putting people to sleep than sleeping tablets. <laughs> Sermons can do that anyway. 
but I, I hope that, um, well, it does happen from time to time. You know, I remember once seeing a woman who was sound asleep. The whole, I can't blame myself she was asleep before I started. <laughs> but she, but she came up to me afterwards, and she was most warm, and she threw her arms around me, and she said, thanks for that. That was a most refreshing hour. <laughs> um, but uh, genealogies can do that to people, but, but the Bible's full of them. Genesis, in fact, has lots of genealogies. Uh, a genealogy is really your family tree. There's a big interest now. My wife has been involved in family trees, and she invited some people to a, a do last July, uh, and they came from all over the world, 140 of them. People that she never knew she was related to around the world, yachtsmen and all sorts of things uh, that all turned up as part of that family tree. And the Bible is about the family tree of the chosen people of God. And so we're looking today at God's family tree and what significance that has for us. Already this morning we've heard that uh, God is in control of history. And that's one of the things that God's family tree shows us. In Genesis, the family tree starts with a relative of our Lord who went away back 2,000 years before the birth of our Lord. He's the first relative mentioned in Genesis. And his name is Abraham. He was just about the same time before Christ as we are after Christ. And yet he was a very significant relative because God promised him a family tree that would match and be greater than any other family tree in the world. God said to Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a wonderful promise. There are great promises in God's word. But you know, this is one promise that looked as if it was never going to be fulfilled. There were so many obstacles First of all, poor Abraham was promised that his seed would be as numerous as the sand in the seashore and he couldn't even have one baby. Didn't look as if God's promise was really leading anywhere. You know, there are people today who believe that all the promises of the second coming of Christ and all, that it's, it's all gone now. That's never going to happen. And there must have been people who thought that about the promises made to Abraham. Among the obstacles, certainly you had people like the Egyptians. Did you know that the first mention of the people of Abraham outside the Bible, this is the very first time that we ever read about Israel outside the Bible, is an obituary. This is a massive stone, as you can see. It's about 12 foot high. And on this stone, Pharaoh Merneptah, who lived 200 years before King David, in between Moses and David, this Pharaoh talks about all the great things that he's done. And at the bit at the bottom, where you see it a little bit darker there, you see there? That's where he mentions Israel. 200 years before King David. And what does he say? He says, I have wiped out Israel. They have no more seed. He was wrong. But that's, uh, that's called the Merneptah stile. So the first mention of Israel outside the Bible says they've been 
destroyed. And so the great promises to Abraham certainly looked to be in jeopardy at that stage. And then you had not only the Egyptians, but also the Philistines. If you look up the dictionary, the word Philistine means uncultured person. I could tell you how all that came about, but it's rubbish. They were not uncultured. They were very cultured. They were especially cultured in making weapons. There's a, a weapon that uh, has got an ivory handle and it's riveted in place. And it goes back to the time of King Saul. So that makes it about 3,000 years old. It looks pretty cultured to me, but cultured in the art of war especially, and they tried to wipe out the Israelites. So you had the Egyptians saying the promise to Abraham, this family tree will never happen. You had the Philistines, and you had the Assyrians. And if you go to the British Museum, you can still see some of the massive, uh, very powerful weapons that the Assyrians had. And also... If you go to the British Museum, and I recommend it, you will see the first drawing of Israelites that we have available to us. And I'll show them to you this morning. The first drawing, because the Assyrians uh, had artists, and they're very good artists, and they saw all these people traveling to Assyria to bring <coughs> gifts to the king of Assyria. And one of them was Jehu, the king of Israel, who lived just after King Ahab. And we've got drawings that were made. And these drawings are very, very good. This is called, it's a big, it's a big solid piece of, uh, of, of stone, about six foot high. And uh, if you go to the British Museum, it's called the, um, the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser III. And if you ask for that, somebody will show you where it is. And you can see all sorts of people drawn in different ways, and their clothes are drawn in detail. And there's King Jehu bowing down before the king of Assyria. So this people who are supposed to be triumphant and great and the greatest people in the world, and, and God would look after their seed, here he is, and you can see a picture of the sun god above the head of the king of Israel. Do you want to see some more Israelites? All bringing their taxes. Here they are. Look a bit like the seven dwarfs, the <laughs> funny headdress. And, but look at the, the dress they had and all the rest of it. They're, they've all got beards. And there's the first picture of the Israelites. And they are like slaves under the domination of the Assyrians. So there were times when it certainly didn't look like God was in control. It certainly didn't look like he was fulfilling his promises to the Israelites or to Abraham. It certainly didn't look like God's plan was working. And then there was the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem. And then there was King Herod. I just thought I'd just take a minute or two to tell you a little bit about him. Is that all right? It's not the normal thing in the morning service, but... Uh, uh, I, I thought he's an interesting character because he's called Herod the Great. He died just about a year or two after the birth of Jesus. So he's not the King Herod mentioned later on. This is the Herod the Great. What was so great about him? He was born to a wealthy family who converted to Judaism. His father was an Arab, but Herod was raised as a Jew and um, kept 
the food laws and things like that. He had really no right to be king. But he was a very effective um, governor. He was a governor of Galilee for a while. And he was a great law and order man. There was an awful lot of robbery and things going on. The Romans who were in control of most of the area at that time, they didn't like all the robberies and things. And Herod was a strong law and order man. There was a number of thieves who were ensconced in caves. And he created a system of cages to let the soldiers down to capture them. And anybody found breaking and entry? They got two years in jail? No. They were sold immediately as slaves. If you were caught robbing. So Herod, uh, really, the Romans liked him. And Mark Antony, in 40 BC, made him the king of the Jews. He really no right to be. Uh, and, and that's why, according to the church historian Josephus, uh, he actually destroyed some of the genealogies, like the ones you get in Matthew, because they showed that other people had more right to be king than he had. And so if Josephus is right, he actually destroyed the sort of thing that you read in Matthew because there were records like that in the palace and he destroyed them because he was paranoid. He knew, he knew he wasn't the rightful king of the Jews. When Mark Antony was defeated by Caesar Augustus, oh, you get all sorts of information here. This is all about the, the history of the Romans as well. Caesar Augustus uh, realized that Herod was a very able administrator and Caesar Augustus apparently had a sense of humor because he noted that this man was totally ruthless, more ruthless than Caesar because Herod killed his beloved wife because he got suspicious of her. And then he killed some of his sons. So Caesar joked about this and uh, said, uh, and I'll show it to you later, he said it was actually better to be Herod's pig because, of course, Jews don't eat pig. So Caesar says it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. I think I've got that up somewhere later. Uh, he was also, for, for seven or eight years, president of the Olympic Games. So, did you see why people called him Herod the Great? Did you know that? He also was extraordinarily rich, which is why the Romans liked him. And he made a monument to King David, because he wanted people to think of him as the successor to King David even though he had really no right to that. And he made a monument to King David that you could see all over Jerusalem. But he wanted people to think of him, especially as King Solomon's successor. He wanted them to think of him as a wise person. So he wanted to build a better temple than King Solomon's. And for years and years, for the temple building had 10,000 workers at it. And so... That's why, as a great builder, as a great administrator, and as a ruthless monarch who killed his own children, let alone the babies of Bethlehem, that's why some people call him Herod the Great. But really, in his day, someone was born who was the great king of all. And there's the thing, better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. He destroyed the genealogies and he tried to kill Jesus. So all these things looked as if God's promises would never be fulfilled. So you can see how we say that in spite of all of this, when everything looked as if it couldn't go much further wrong, God was in control. 
God was in control of history. And that's the first thing we learn about this family tree. It was a, we know it was a, the, the virgin birth was a, a miracle. But you know, it was a miracle that, uh, that we ever got to that stage at all with so many things against the promises of God coming true. Also, genealogies, this family tree, speaks to us about God's choice of unusual people. Uh, this is Mark. You've heard of Rick Warren, have you? He's written a number of books. Here's how he uh, very humorously describes how God uses the most unusual people in the Bible. He says, Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Hmm. Gideon was poor. Rahab was immoral. Talk about her in a minute. David had an affair and all kinds of problems. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was reluctant. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric, to say the least. Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. And Jesus used them all. God used them all in his family tree. God used these people in spite of who they were. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier, one of the great messages that I hope we'll get across this morning because it was in our hymns that, that we were singing, was that God uses unusual people. And we don't have to be standing at the front. We don't have to be doing anything in particular. Every single one of us is unique. There's nobody else in the world like you or like me. God has made us differently. So we don't all do the same thing. I remember once when I was in Scripture Gift Mission going away down to Cork and being on board a boat with Walter Burrell, if you've heard of him, uh, about midnight and trying to help Walter to witness to overseas seamen. And there was a big man, I didn't know what he was saying. I don't know where he was from, but his accent, was, I just kept saying yes. <laughs> then Walter came over and he said, let's get out of here. You've messed this up. I said, why? He says, what was he talking to you about? He said, I said, it was something about the weather. He says, no, he asked you, did you know where he could get dancing girls? <laughs> and he says, you said yes. Now he's waiting for them. <laughs> so I learned from that to let Walter do his bit and I would do mine, not to try and do something I couldn't do. And you know, we're made differently. We're not all doing the same. We're not all called to do the same thing. God has something special. And just your smile, the way you live, the people you meet, that's all part of being God's servant. And you don't have to be standing at the front. God can use all of us. He uses unusual people. As uh, in this amazing genealogy, as somebody pointed out to me earlier, genealogies in the Bible, because it was the way it worked at the time, tended to be genealogies of the men. You know, feminist scholars who read the book of Ruth say it's a wonderful book. It's all about very assertive and uh, women who get through very difficult times and then the last four verses, after the women do the work, all the praise goes to the men. But that's, uh, uh, that was the society that they were living in. And so this genealogy is the same, except that God puts women 
into this genealogy in Matthew's gospel as the relatives of Jesus. And some of them were not the sort of people you would expect. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth are all unexpected. Let me just pick one of them, Rahab. The Bible says that when the spies of Joshua chapter 1 and 2 went to spy out Jericho, they went to the house of a prostitute called Rahab. Some Christian commentators find that rather hard to take. So they say that Rahab, you know, may not have been a prostitute in our sense, that she might have been the local B&B lady. Um, Well, I I can understand why they feel a bit sensitive about it, but you know, uh, the word actually actually doesn't mean B&B lady, it means prostitute. And it shows you that one of the people whose trade represented sinful behavior is in this genealogy because God made her a different person. She was converted. She trusted in the Lord. And there's a verse later on in Joshua that says that she lived with the people of Israel and worshipped their God until the day of her death and brought up her family in that way. God took her out of the gutter and made her into someone who was part of his people. And it was so special that God put her into the genealogy, into the family tree of Jesus, right at the start of the book of Genesis. So God uses unusual people. David had sinned against God, and and, uh, it's mentioned here that his wife was really the wife of Uriah the Hittite, whom he had slain. King David had skeletons in the cupboard. King David was not someone who did everything right all the time. And yet, God sent his son to save sinners. And this shows us that there's absolutely no one too hard for him to reach. If he can save a Rahab and use a David, God can use all of us. And then there's Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary are... are, uh, a peasant couple, not a home you would expect a king to be born into. Uh, Joseph was working up in Nazareth, probably earlier on in the time of Herod the Great, probably his family had been um, down in Jerusalem where those 10,000 workers were working at the temple. But that had all been cut back now and they were looking for other work. And just north of Nazareth, there was a new town being built. Well, actually, it was an old town, but it had been wiped out during a time of war. A town called Sephorus. And it was, when you can watch, you can walk around it today. And that was being rebuilt. And so builders and carpenters like Joseph, that's where they worked. It was uh, an unusual couple that God chose. A peasant couple. And as Paul put it, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised has God chosen. Yes, and things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. That's our God. And I just emphasize the point. Whoever you are, be encouraged today. You are his and he loves you. And the fact that 
he has spoken to you this morning means that he's here to assure each one of us that we are loved by him. There's where Joseph worked, away up in Nazareth. Had to come all the way down to Bethlehem, where the king of the Jews wasn't born in a gilted manger, in a gilted um, crib, but rather in a manger. And finally, because we've seen that genealogies tell us God is in control, they tell us that God uses unusual people it shows us how concerned God was for our salvation. At the start of Genesis, let me show you, uh, at the start of the book of Matthew, let me give you the literal translation of what that uh, genealogy starts with in chapter 1. It says, this is the record of the, and the Greek word is, Genesis. So Matthew's gospel starts with Genesis. This is the record of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, way back in the time of Genesis, whenever everything was chaos, the, the Hebrew is tohu wavohu. And when you go into a room that, like Hazel was talking today about things being in a mess sometimes, uh, my office, I think, would sometimes be described as that in modern Hebrew. Tohu wavohu. But I know where everything is. Until the wife tidies it up. Uh, tohu wavohu. Everything was tohu wavohu until the Holy Spirit started to move in creation in the book of Genesis. And isn't it interesting that right at the start of the book of Matthew, the Holy Spirit who was moving in Genesis starts moving again. He is working a new creation in Mary. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. This was the work of the Lord. Jesus wasn't Joseph's son. He was the son of the living God. And so today, the reason that Jesus came is not just ancient history of 2,000 years ago. He came to make a difference to people today. Just as the Holy Spirit was involved in a, new, in a creation in the book of Genesis, so the Genesis that we read of in Matthew relates to a new creation. And Paul tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Jesus came to make a difference, to make a difference in this world, to make people exactly as he wanted them to be. He didn't come to recreate the world. He came to give people new life. His name was Emmanuel. Im means with. Anu means us. And El means God. And that's what the birth of Jesus was. With us, God. The wonderful thing is today, right through this service, I believe that with us, God, we are a great company of people here, and it's lovely to see so many. But the most important thing is we're not on our own. God is here to speak to our hearts, to change our lives, and to make a difference. And if you've never known him as Savior, I say to you, he is the one who came 
to put you into his family tree. We've been talking about genealogies as a family tree. We've been talking about some of the people who are in that family tree. But God came that we would all be in the family tree of Jesus. His family tree has a name. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, he puts our name in the Lamb's Book of Life and we become part of the great family tree of God. We become children. We become his relatives, children of the living God in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's where he wants your name to be. My name's there. Your name's there. Lots of people have got their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know, as a lecturer today, there's one thing annoys me a bit, especially about the university. I've got an exam tomorrow, and uh, the students will be working hard. And uh, I love them. They're going to do their very best in that exam. And when I get their papers... And I know that Julie so-and-so has worked hard. But when I get her paper, it will say number 342821. All numbers. Everything I get, I will never know who wrote which paper. Not allowed to know. I'm glad God doesn't work like that. I'm not number 342 or 666 or whatever. I am... (laughs) He, He knows me as James. And he knows you as John or Mary or Christine or Hazel. He knows my name. He doesn't go by numbers. He's put my... Because he loves us personally. And he knows us personally. And today, he's the living God of all the world. And he's got a a lot of people. But he remembers them all. And those that love him are part of his family tree. Is your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? If it is, be encouraged today. We're part of something big. Something that looked as if it could never happen. And today, the church sometimes, it it just looks as if it will never, ever exist in, in, in 20 years' time. It looks that way. But you see, God's in control of history. He uses unusual people. And he's concerned for our salvation. And nothing can thwart his plans. He's in charge. And someday, we'll understand it better, by and by. So let us just summarize our thoughts a little bit. God's control of history, God's choice of people, God's concern for us. Whoever we are, we can leave this morning knowing that we're not a number to God. He knows us by name, and he loves us, even though even though he knows the worst things about us. I always think it's an amazing thing that the one who knows the worst about me loves me the most. The one who knows the worst about you loves you the most. And today, we can leave here encouraged. If we know the Lord, we're part of a great plan of salvation. If we don't know the Lord, then this is the day This is the hour. This is the opportunity to become part of something great. Part of God's great plan of salvation. Part of the family tree of the living God. We belong to him. We are family. And he 
is the one who made it possible when he was born as a baby in Herod's palace. No. In a manger away down the road at Bethlehem. The wise men looked in the wrong place. They weren't that wise after all. The baby who was born didn't want to be associated with the rich and famous. He became poor that we, through him, might be made rich and belong to the family tree of royalty, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us pray together. Our Father, we pray that we will leave encouraged today, knowing that, that you are building your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing can thwart your plans. And although things sometimes go wrong, and sometimes, Lord, we might feel that you are hidden. But although you are hidden, and although it looked at times in the Bible as if you were the hidden God, we thank you that you're never the absent God. You're always there because you've said, I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So help us to go out this morning encouraged and blessed with a new spring in our step because we belong to Jesus, which is called the Christ. Amen.